Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbuck CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A year like no other, from the pandemic to race relations to foreign relations, as told through the books we read. Welcome to a special year-end edition of Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. Bloomberg Editor-in-Chief John Micklethwaite. Wes Moore of the Robin Hood Foundation. And Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations. We spent the year glued to our screens, whether it was a terminal or a laptop or a smartphone or just a plain old television set. And the headlines came in faster than we could really absorb them, going back and forth among COVID-19 and a presidential election and gyrating markets and stark reminders of the very different lives that we lead based on our race and our ethnicity and our economic status. But even as we struggle to keep up with the day-to-day, it is not too soon to start thinking about the larger themes, the longer arc of history that we are living through. And there is no better way to do that than to read some of the books that were published during this year. And so we have this special installment of Wall Street Week given over to books that were published this year, seeing his history through the eyes of some of the authors who are making us think and reflect. We begin, as we must, with the pandemic and what it showed us about how we deal with the crisis and whether our governments are up to it. Bloomberg editor-in-chief John Micklethwaite joined with economist author Adrian Wooldrich to bring us the wake-up call, a penetrating look at which countries worked and which did not. Well, the very short answer is that Britain and America, you know, two of the countries that have led the world have done it incredibly badly. Um, if just monitor it by the number of deaths per million, well over 800 deaths per million 
By contrast, Germany, down around 150. And especially those Asian countries, Japan, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, you know, they're, they're in very small numbers, three, sometimes as few as five deaths per million, sometimes 20, 30 deaths per million. And so there has been a real difference, as you put, between good government and bad government. Indeed, government has been the difference between living and dying in many places. And what accounts for that? There are various theories. I mean, for example, the Asia, particularly Taiwan, Korea, and to some extent China have done well because it's more of a collectivist approach to society rather than individualistic. I think we should come back to China in a second, but but on the on the broad terms, I think that's a too good an excuse for the West um, on two, several different levels. Firstly, if you look at any measure of other things to do with state efficiency, schools, you know, whose whose schools are doing well, it's the same set of countries are doing well. Whose whose general health systems lead to long life expectancy, the same thing. Virtually every barometer of whether a government is working well or not has been moving in Asia's direction over the past 20, 30 years. And it's just, that's the reason why it's a wake-up call. Arguing about consensus, yes, there is an advantage there, but it's the kind of advantage which gives you a 10 or 20% advantage. It's not the sort of advantage which explains somebody being 20 or 30 times better. I mean, you, David, most of in our day jobs, when we look at a company, and one company is sort of 20% better than another one, you think that other one's in trouble. In this case, countries were 20 times better. And that brings me on to the second thing. If you look at South Korea, look at Seoul, London, and New York. They're roughly the same size. Seoul's a little bit bigger. And yet New York has lost over 25,000 people. London, well over 6,000. Seoul's lost a few dozen. And this is the place that bought Parasite. It's the place with some of the world's largest nightclubs. It's a place that bought K-pop, which I know you listen to all the time. It's a vibrant, chaotic, democratic city with a lot of creativity, crowded subways, huge things. It's got exactly the same kind of dynamic as London or New York. It just happens to be a lot better run. And it's run because people have paid attention to government. How much of it is because of the leadership, the particular people involved? That's a really good question. And again, I think this is where America particularly has to be a bit careful. I I think there are a lot of Americans who think that because Donald Trump did a bad job with COVID, and I think by most people's standards, he did do a very bad job, um, so to speak, the problem is solved. And I think that just isn't true. You look at the fundamental reason why America was bad at this. It's because it has a healthcare system that's designed to look after the rich and the old. So a pandemic hits everybody, hits the poor particularly. So America was always bound to be exposed. And you look at the other things wrong with American government, racist policing. Well, you know, I'm, Donald Trump may not have helped that much, but I covered Rodney King in Los Angeles 30 years ago. That has been going on a long time. Look at American schools. Okay, they're 20th or 30th, depending on how you measure it in the world when it comes to education. Those education t- tables that the Asians come top in. But that's been going on for years too. Trump may not have done much to help it. So that the structural problems of the American state go much deeper than just one man. It's to do with the fact that the Republicans don't have any answers to do with government other than to make it smaller. And the Democrats are too wedded to the public sector unions to engage with the reform. And as long as that continues, America's going to have that problem that any big crisis, its public sector is not going to be much good. That was John Micklethwaite, editor-in-chief of Bloomberg and author of The Wake-Up Call. Coming up, America's long struggle with race came to the fore again in 2020 with the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. 
And Wes Moore of the Robin Hood Foundation took us through the anatomy of a similar incident in Baltimore five years ago when Freddie Gray was killed. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The United States was rocked this year by a series of police killings of unarmed black citizens, including that of George Floyd in Minneapolis and Breonna Taylor in Louisville. And this is just the latest in a long line of such incidents through American history, revealing the deep divisions in our society. Wes Moore, the head of the Robin Hood Foundation, has written about one of these. It was the killing of Freddie Gray in Baltimore back in 2015. And Wes lays out what happened, what led to it, and what the aftermath was from a variety of perspectives. I'm a Baltimore native, and in many ways, Baltimore City helped to raise me. Uh, and I, I, one of the things that really struck me about Freddie's story was, you know, I, I, I unfortunately have been to many funerals before my life, but his funeral was the first funeral that I'd ever been to when the person who was laying in the casket, I never knew in life. And that haunted me uh, because Freddie Ray's funeral was a big deal in Baltimore. Uh, but then the thing that really helped to, to, to trigger wanting to write this book and tell this story was, uh, was not just the horror of his death, but in many ways, the horror of his life. And that's what I, what I wanted to uncap, what I wanted to uncover. And you say, I'll just read a bit from the prologue here. You say, we had come from similar places, you and Freddie Gray, but I had been so fortunate, so blessed. And you go on to talk about your mother and your grandparents and the breaks you got along the way. How does it happen that two people with similar sorts of situations can take such divergent paths? Well, you know, I I think that one of the things I wanted to be able to look at is when you look at the life of Freddie Gray, for, for so much of us, particularly for individuals, all of us, who feel like we're coming out from the margins, right? Where, where this wasn't always destined, that we, we could end up being there. There are a lot of factors that play into it, but one of the big factors that plays into it, unfortunately, is luck. It's, it's had getting, getting a break that someone else might not get, an opportunity that someone else might not get. And, and the idea that we would have or can have a society that is relying on luck as a prerequisite in order for people to be able to move from one position to another to another position is really hard. And you think about Freddie's life in particular. Uh, you know, Freddie was born premature, underweight, addicted to heroin. Uh, his mother never made it to high school. She couldn't read or write. She has 
these twins, Freddie and his twin sister, Frederica, by the time they had gained enough weight to actually leave the hospital, they moved into a housing project in West Baltimore that had endemic levels of lead inside of the home. And so Freddie Gray is now underweight, addicted to heroin, lead poisoned. And by this time in his life, he's two years old. And so it gets back to this larger point of, did Freddie Gray even have a chance? Did he even have a shot? Or was that last interaction that he had where, where he was where he, he died was killed in police custody for the crime of making eye contact with police, which triggered probable cause? Uh, was that a just one the last system to break in the life of Freddie Gray? Well, see, that's what I find, one of the things I found very powerful in this book is uh, obviously what happened with the police was inexcusable. Police officers were indicted, although I don't think they were convicted. But it was inexcusable what happened to that police van. But the problem with Freddie Gray started way past that. And when you talk about systems, we talk about systemic racism, systemic inequality. It's a series of systems. There's a lot of systems here that put Freddie Gray in the wrong place. And for that matter, put police in the wrong place at the same time. That's exactly right. I mean, when you look at the life of Freddie Gray, every every system failed him. Uh, you know, the education system, when when the, the last day of, of attendance that he had recorded in Baltimore City Public Schools uh, was in 10th grade when he was 19 years old. He had been in special education developmental coursework his entire academic career because of the lead poisoning. The CDC indicates that five microbes of lead in every deciliter of blood is enough to give a person cognitive damage for the rest of their life. Freddie Gray had 36. And so this was a young man who from the earliest ages, from, from, from being a toddler, was going to be cognitively damaged for the rest of his life because of something he had absolutely zero to do with. And now was that the fact that the home that he was living in and the water that he was drinking was making him sick. And so when you're looking at all these various systems that then were in place and just were not in place in the life of Freddie Gray, uh, it, it forces all of us to understand that this is not just going to be about policing. Reforming the police department is, is, is necessary and it is imperative. However, we also have to understand that the amount of systems and the amount of touches that Freddie Gray had in broken systems throughout led to the, to the idea that that last interaction with the broken system, with that one broken system, uh, was just kind of a continuation of a lot of the larger life challenges that he was facing. And I want to take us through some of the concrete steps, because you have concrete steps in your book that should be taken. But before that, this is a story about Freddie Gray, but it's also the story about eight other individuals. Uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting, compelling way to tell the story, sort of Rashomon, from different people's points of view at the time over those critical five days uh, that were really Baltimore was on fire. Give us a sense of some of those characters that you identify. I tell you, David, it was one of the things that I absolutely loved about this story, because if if Baltimore, Baltimore is one thing, it's full of characters. And I was hearing it from every single strata of our society about what people thought about what happened and, and what were the lessons learned. And and so I really wanted to then take some of those conversations that I was having personally with people and share them with the world. And so I broke it down to these eight characters, you know, uh, uh, a police major who grew up in West Baltimore, who was having conversations with me where he said, he's one of the highest ranking African-Americans uh, on the police force, but who was having conversation with me and he would say, you know, I know that none of my colleagues woke up that morning with homicide in their mind, but I also know for the kids in West Baltimore, why they don't believe me. You know, a, a woman who lost her brother to police violence just 18 months earlier 
in Baltimore City and who was loving the fact that Baltimore was rising up and Baltimore was 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 marching and doing something about this, but also is feeling a real sense of frustration because she's basically saying to herself, but where was this when my brother was killed by police and no one had anything to say? You know, a, a, a basketball star turned protester, the son of the owner of the Baltimore Orioles, who's the head of baseball operations. So when the Baltimore Orioles played the Chicago White Sox and for the first time in baseball history, they played a game and the official attendance was zero because the city was in a state of emergency. He was one of the final people to make the call and say, I want to play the game, even if there's no fans in there, because I want the world to see this. And so by looking at it through these various sets of eyes, by looking at it through people who come up and represent different stratas of our society, you know, we really wanted to show a, a kaleidoscope of how complex so many of these situations are, but also how it still fundamentally comes down to two disparate issues. It's race and it's poverty and how those two beasts have a way of coinciding to create pretty disastrous results if we are not dealing with them. That was Wes Moore, head of the Robin Hood Foundation and author of Five Days, The Fiery Reckoning of an American City. Coming up, in a year full of ups and downs, energy was no exception. Expert Dan Jurgen put it all in a broader context in his book, The New Map. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The pandemic hit worldwide demand for oil hard, leaving OPEC Plus scrambling throughout the year to figure out how to respond to that fall in demand. Dan Jurgen of IHS Market kept us abreast of all of those changes, but also put it in the larger context of how we are shifting the way we get our energy and use our energy, all of which is covered in his new book, The New Map. I think it's an evolution that's going on. I was recently with a bunch of the leaders of the electric power industry. They do look to be net zero carbon by 2035 or 2040. Many of them are moving that direction. Other parts of it, I think it, it, it evolves over time. There are 280 million cars in the United States and about 279 million of them run on gasoline. And I don't think people are going to throw away their cars. So I think it's this is a longer evolution. And I think there's what happens in the U.S., but the U.S., remember, is only 15 percent of CO2 emissions. China's twice that. Uh, India, other emerging markets are looking towards commercial energy to get away from burning wood and waste in people's houses with the health consequences. So I think this is something that unfolds time directionally where it's going. That's clear. Directionally, the timing really matters, and the bets can be rather substantial. In your book, you point out how many jobs in the United States, I think there's 10 million, are tied to the energy industry. We also have trillions of dollars globally. Who's putting bets on which side of this? And we saw a report today that Exxon, basically internal documents leaked, suggest that Exxon is not moving as quickly as maybe some others away from fossil fuel emissions. China certainly might benefit, you point out in your book. Russia, maybe not. Who's betting on which side of this? Well, let me say, I think the Exxon thing, of course, that's a still unfolding story. But I think what's happening is all major companies now are looking at their at their at their emissions and saying, what are they going to be? And then the question becomes, how do you mitigate them? And in the in the new map, you know, there's this whole chapter called Breakthrough Technologies based upon the work that Ernie Moniz, a former energy secretary, and I did for led for Bill Gates Foundation and Breakthrough Energy Coalition about the technologies we need. And one of them that's really very major is what's called carbon capture, carbon mitigation, simply when you look at the numbers. And I think that's where, you know, we're going to see uh, increased uh, 
uh, investment going in terms of research on that to, to meet it. In terms of countries, China's a significant winner here because it, unlike the U.S., it imports 75% of its oil, and it regards that as a major strategic problem, particularly in the geopolitical issues that are now developing. And it has a dominant position in many of what we might call, what they call the new energies. For instance, about 70% of the solar panels of the world are made in China, another 10% by Chinese companies. And it's Chinese manufacturing that's partly responsible for this revolution in solar costs, which have come way down. So, you know, they would be a big beneficiary of this. One of the things that I, I was surprised and I learned from your book is the Department of Energy under President Trump is investing an awful lot of money in research, science and research, some of which actually has to go to renewables. Right. Uh, Six and a half billion dollars in um, in basic science research. And, and that's the foundation, really the true foundation of an energy transition. And that's been pretty consistent. That has been one area of bipartisan cooperation in, in seeing the importance of maintaining that commitment. And this is where the U.S. strength really comes from, which is we have this incredible ecosystem that goes from 17 national labs, that kind of expenditure, universities, companies, startups. No other country has that advantage in new technologies. Take wind and solar. They're, those are 50-year-old industries, but it's only in the last 10 years that they've really become so competitive. So it takes time. And so the investment you make now really pays off, but it can take 10 or 20 years from now. Dan, draw one other contrast that, again, I got from your book, The New Map, uh, and that is between Russia, which is very dependent on fossil fuels, goodness knows, and Saudi Arabia, which is also very dependent, but they have that Vision 2030 campaign going on. Does Russia have anything similar to that about what comes after fossil fuels? No, I don't think so. I mean, Vladimir Putin said it's great. Our uh, our budget is only now 30% oil instead of being 40% oil, the money coming from it. But I think Russia has been talking about diversification for uh, uh, for 20 years since Putin came to power, and it's really not happening. In fact, I was at a conference where I asked Putin that question. He and Chancellor Merkel were on the platform uh, about diversification, but we got sidetracked because I mentioned shale, and he really doesn't like U.S. shale. So he, he gave me his, uh, his, his opinions on that, which were pretty strong. So I think Saudi Arabia is trying to do it, but, you know, it's hard to shift an economy that is so dependent upon oil. It was hard before COVID. It's more difficult right now. And I think one of the things the Saudis, it's clear to them, in order to diversify away from oil, you actually need some oil revenues. That was Dan Jurgen, vice chairman of IHS Market and author of The New Map. Coming up, we end this special edition of Wall Street Week with Larry Summers and his book picks for the year. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. 
This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We are back with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, for his view on some books this year that really stood out for him. So, Larry, what books really made an impression on you this year? There are three that I'm going to comment on, uh, David. Uh, The first is my former boss, Barack Obama's uh, memoir. Politicians' memoirs are usually ghost-written exercises in uh, self-justification and in rewarding uh, the politicians' uh, friends uh, with compliments. Uh, President Obama's uh, book is obviously uh, self-written. It is much more candid than Uh, Most such memoirs, uh, like all of us, President uh, Obama sees himself in a basically favorable light, but with much more admission of uncertainty, of uh, possible uh, regret, and much more candor in his portraits of events Uh, and ideas. And so if one's looking for a government memoir or a political memoir that gives a feeling of what it's like uh, to be there, seeing things as a senior actor does, uh, I can't think of one that's better uh, than uh, President Obama's. Whatever you think of his skill as a president, his skill as a memoirist is quite extraordinary. And one thing that struck me about that book, uh, Larry, was that it, it doesn't feel like it's pulling a lot of punches, but it also doesn't feel like it's a lot of score settling. And there are people clearly he has really differences of opinion with people actually he really doesn't quite uh, uh, admire, and yet it doesn't feel like he's settling scores. I think that President Obama's strength, and some would say, his limitation is a kind of extraordinarily mature perspective and capacity for strategic empathy. He has the ability to walk in the shoes of others and therefore to understand where they're coming from. And that limits his capacity for rage or for a desire for uh, revenge. And for many of us, that is a great uh, strength. Um, For others, it bespeaks an excessive neutrality um, when merits uh, are clear. But I think that is something that comes through uh, in a book that is certainly quite revealing of the character of its author. So that's one, uh, President Obama's book, uh, Deaths of Despair. Deaths of Despair is 
written by um, the Princeton professors Ann Case and uh, Angus uh, Deaton, and particularly for those like me who are drawn to statistics and quantitative information, it is a profoundly disturbing evocation of what is happening to the middle of our country. What's happening to the middle of our country geographically, what's happening to the middle of our country in the sense of the middle of the income uh, distribution, what's happening to people who have middle-rung jobs uh, in uh, hierarchies. And what's happening is that too many of them are dying too young. We've taken it as a hallmark of a progressive society that life expectancy goes up. And for substantial subgroups in our population, that has stopped being true. And that is disturbing in it in its own sake. And it is also disturbing because of all of the things in terms of life fulfillment that are likely to be co coinciding uh, with that. And so in terms of pointing to what is going to be a huge challenge for our democracy uh, going forward, this book does a superb job of complementing more individualistic treatments like uh, hillbilly elegy of uh, life. And you can agree or disagree with some of their policy uh, recommendations, but there's a starkness in decreasing life expectancy and increasing uh, death that I think has to command the attention of anyone who cares about our country's future. And, and that, that increase in death, as I understand it, comes from things like opioid addiction, alcoholism, suicide rates, uh, which may actually be tied a bit into employment, right? Because we've seen, particularly in males of prime age, a decline in employment rate that's attributed to some of those causes. I think it, it goes both ways. People are more likely to become addicted to substances because they're without work, and they're more likely to be without work because they're addicted uh, to substances. And so uh, there's a kind of vicious cycle uh, that's underway, but it's a profound statement about the way things function in our country, that uh, 50 years ago, uh, people in their 50s had, men in, the, men in their early 50s had a 5% chance of not working. And today, most of the time, they have a 15% chance of uh, not working. And of course, if 15% of the people overall are not working, that means that the number who will be without work for six months within a year, or the number of those from disadvantaged demographic groups who are not working is much greater than uh, 15%. And to what extent, you use a critical word there, men, to what extent is this skew male? The, the increases have been much more substantial among uh, men. Some of that is because something else has gone on with respect uh, to uh, women. We've had a change over the last 50 years in the attitude towards uh, women uh, working. 
But I think there is an increasing body of evidence. Some of it has to do with the replacement of physical labor that these trends have disproportionately um, hurt uh, men and hurt the economic prospects uh, of uh, men. And your third selection goes overseas to China. Kishore Madhubani, uh, a longtime Singaporean diplomat and international thinker, has been perhaps the most powerful voice over the last decade, making the case that the big transformation in the world is the shift in the center of gravity of just about everything from the West uh, to the East. And he makes this case in many ways and in different forums, notably in this book, Has China Won? But I have to say that when I looked at non-democratic China running its society in a way where despite early mistakes, uh, the death rate from COVID as a share of the population was in the range of being just one or 2% of what ours has been, it does have to make you think about the capacity of different systems to uh, protect uh, their people. And I think that people have to look very carefully at the differences between Asia and the West in terms of the success with which societies have dealt with COVID and think very carefully about that. I'm not prepared to say what it means or what policy inferences follow uh, from it, but it is a very stark kind of observation and one that I think uh, will deserve over time a lot of reflection. Okay, Larry Summers, it's always a delight to end the week with you. That is our special contributor, Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. It was truly a year for the history books, with some of that history already written and much more yet to come. But as we start to look forward, take a look at what we read this past year. According to both Amazon and the New York Public Library, it was not the books about the pandemic or about the economy or about the presidential election. No, it was the books about race that captured our attention this past year. Books like The Vanishing Half and White Fragility and Where the Crawdads Sing, not to mention not one but two books by the Obamas. Speaking personally, the book I read this year that made the most difference to me was Elizabeth Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns, the story of the mass migration in the 20th century of black Americans from the South to the North, what they endured, and how their experiences have profound and lasting effects to this day. We have a lot to put behind us, a lot to repair in our healthcare system, to our economy, to the way we govern ourselves. But if there's one thing that 2020 should have taught us is that we cannot really move forward until we fully understand our past, until we fully understand the extent to which we have fallen short of our goal to make sure that all of us have the means to pursue our hopes and our dreams, that all of us can truly exercise our right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.
What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.